Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with my very close friend, J.P. Sears. J.P., someone that I admire quite a bit, um, what he's done with himself, his family, his career. Uh, he's gone from being a therapist, a uh, trek practitioner, uh, to a comedian, uh, to an author, to one of the world's most influential political commentators, uh, I would say. I, I would suggest that. And this conversation was really, truly one of my favorites. I'm really excited to share this one. Um, it gets into gender dysphoria, uh, identity, our identity structure, who we are, who we think we are, um, the concepts of heroes and villains in our lives and politics, and uh, just a lot of really great stuff. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. I want to thank you for subscribing to this program. Wherever you're listening to this, you get each week's episodes. Also, thank you for leaving reviews wherever you're listening to this as well. I'm going to thank Megan Masako uh, for leaving this review on Apple Podcast. She says, excellent podcast, one of my favorite podcasts I keep on rotation is Positive Attitude is one I thoroughly enjoy listening to first thing in the morning. As a massage therapist, I've enjoyed the information on how to take better care of your body. I can't recommend this podcast enough. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate that. Uh, all right, let's get to it with my guy, JP Sears. Is this place, what is the term? Self-sustaining? What is it? What is it? What is the term it, for these things? Yeah, self self-sustaining would probably be the term. And no, it's not that. We're <laughs> Do you have intention of, of going in that direction? Yeah, we do. Slowly moving in that direction. Um, a couple of the steps that we've yet to take would be drilling a well. Um, the barn roof is also set up for rainwater collection already. We just need to get a rainwater collection tanks. So the, the water element would be part of it. And then solar would be the other big part of it. And we've got some garden area is already going but we also have plans to put in a significant garden cool yeah but then then like chickens like if the poop ever hit the fan like say tomorrow and we can keep our chickens alive they produce enough eggs that we could live off that yeah we'd probably get sick of eggs but so i was reflecting on things that i would love to discuss with you and I think that one of the things that stands out during the the last couple of years is I noticed certain um, what may have been I don't know you call them like maybe like latent personality structures or expressions come to the surface with myself and people that I observed in around the time of March of 2020 where for me it was like you think you know your buddies you know, and then it's like, oh, cool, like all good times. Everyone's kind of like, everyone's just pretty alrighty when everything's okay. Yeah. And then suddenly we're in this place of, you know, what's what's perceived to be as a, a crisis point. And I saw a lot of interesting morph, morphing of personalities come out. And I wonder for you in that time frame, did you, one, did you notice that? And two, did you notice a certain like latent expression within yourself 
come out like like an archetype if you wanted to get Jungian with it but yeah. did you notice something different come out of you during that time yeah very much so and and it, much like yourself I noticed probably everybody around me seems to change whether it's for better or worse and and I think mostly in our circle of friends I see people just grow because of the spring of 2020 and what launched then and what I noticed in myself was a very new expression of me, which felt like a very real part of me that had probably always been there. It just hadn't been being expressed. And I would call that the warrior archetype. And it felt like a real important part of my manhood that I hadn't yet claimed. You know, I had been years in the, the spiritual life self-growth path where I felt like cool compassion vulnerability I did those things and I my false sense of being a complete person and a complete man was like that's it like that's awesome keep developing these but I had forgotten about the warrior archetype and yeah I, I felt that come out of me and it it's great to have on the table now and um, I think a mutual friend of ours, Jesse Elder, I heard him say once, Luke Skywalker needs Darth Vader. And you know, the, the parts of us that are there, they need a reason to come out. And we can proactively go in there through our self-growth work to try to bring them out. And, and I think that's effective, but that can only go so far. Sometimes we need like the the formidable opponent or the the weight to be heavy enough to strengthen this muscle to bring our inner resources out to express through our being and and I think for myself the warrior archetype was the biggest thing I noticed change like oh cool there there's this bold part of me that uh, will be unapologetic with what I have to say and crusading for what feels right in my heart. And it's a very strong energy that hadn't really been very active in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting. The theater of villain and hero and how dependent the villain is on the hero and vice versa. And the idea of someone to be good, that concept of being good that it necessitates someone else being bad, you know, and, and all of the stories that we get entwined into, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's like, it's really brilliant. It's like this really brilliant, beautiful hero's journey tale that we're all navigating and we can get consumed by the, the story of our identity and get consumed by the idea that, oh yeah, like this, this, this narrative of other but the reality is, if it weren't for those others, we wouldn't have the, the identity structure that we do around ourselves. I wonder for you, like, how is that for you navigating that story of the, like, who is your other? Who is your villain? It's a good question. Um, I would say the authoritarians in the world, maybe better said tyrants that seem to have an agenda to try to control other people in a way that's not in their best interests, not for the greater good. People who are out to infringe on others' freedoms. To me, that's the the foe at the moment. And like you said, like that has 
great historical, probably timeless roots in the archetypal system. And having that perception of them, I think that's created the catalyst for a new part of me to come out. And I also think it's really helpful to have the more spiritual context of like, and this is a game, but also not spiritually bypassing this beautiful gift of this reality where like, yeah, I'm going to be invested in this game because it feels like it really matters to me, but also having it in the context of this is all a perfect divine orchestration to help give us this beautiful experience of life and realize parts of us that we came here to experience. So yeah, tyrants, I think would be the, the, the foe. Who do you think you'd be without, without the tyrants right now? Yeah, uh, I would say weaker, um, and not like in a judgmental place, but just looking at like me from three years ago, it's like, oh yeah, that was a weaker version of me with a bit of his manhood self-castrated where I bought into like, oh, you know, a, a strong man shouldn't be bold and direct and warrior like that's toxic masculinity. But yeah, who would I be without it? Um, weaker and with less of a sense of purpose. And also at the same time, I'd still be me. Mm -hmm. The sensation, uh, something that I I have experienced is, and I think that you've shared as well, is a sensation of feeling angry and not really know, really knowing like what to do with that. And that's not just in relation to like, you know, lockdowns and things of the sort. Um, There's been lots of instances where for me, a sensation of anger typically is a product of, of maybe feeling like helpless, not knowing like where I have this energy. I don't know where to go with it. And I I feel like I'm just not getting traction in my, my life or this experience. Is that something I've heard you share before that you've something along the lines of, of having some level of trouble, like navigating anger, dealing with anger, perhaps like repressed Mm -hmm. anger. Has that been a thing in your, in your life? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think the at a personal relationship level, it's still something I very much am navigating and learning to be less bad at. Because I think I, I've got some old programming in my head, which runs the show a lot of times, that says anger makes me unlovable. If I get angry, I'm unlovable. I'm a ugly monster. And if someone's angry at me, then I'm still unlovable and I'm a monster or else they wouldn't get angry at me. And so deep seated childhood perceptions, I think put that in me. Then also like, I would say it's weird because to me functioning at more of a social level, like the work that I do in the world where sometimes I'll notice like, cool, anger's really fueling this. And I, I welcome that. I think Anger can be a powerful energy when it's used intentionally and I would dare say used with a purpose. I think anger and no sense of like how to express this productively can really make someone feel very helpless. So for me, having anger fuel some of my work is actually way easier, but in a personal relationship where it's like, oh, now we have direct eye contact and like this, is, it's just way more real than, hey, I'm making a video or doing something on stage. It's way more connective. And the consequences of anger 
feel more real. So that's, I, I think that's where I notice still my real challenge with uh, taming the dragon of anger and uh, taming it in the sense of welcoming it rather than repressing it, which has been my typical dysfunction with it. Are there places in your own experience where you still navigate a sensation of feeling either repressed or helpless? I know that's a very like piercing question that maybe it might be a little too soon. No, I, I, I love it. So uh, places in my life where I'll feel repressed or helpless. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the the first thing that comes up is this the sacred garden of my marriage. Mm. And intellectually, I could like outsmart what I'm about to say, but I'd rather just be true to how I am. Where if my beautiful wife is in a, 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 a troubled place, you know, she's stressed about something, upset about something or going through personal challenges or she's angry at me. But there's just like a big emotional charge where it essentially makes her probably feel unwell. I'll feel a lot of helplessness about that. Like, damn, like I don't know what to do and I can't do anything to make her feel other than the way she feels. So, um, or help her And Like, of course, like it's her journey. It would be handicapping to help her. I, I want to support her, but that I noticed that a fair bit in my relationship, that sense of helplessness and then repressed would be you know in the the same sacred garden where at times I'll notice me suppressing my truth my anger repressing it in the sense of trying to modulate how she feels like oh like I I don't I don't want her to see this part of me I don't want her to see me angry because that would mean she could never love me so I think I do less repressing in my relationship than I used to, but I also like it. Well, I still have a lot of room to grow there because I still do it. Have you, do you know where you learned what sounds to be somewhat of like the, the savior kind of archetype? It, it, it sounds like that. And, and you certainly have expressed that on the internet over the last couple of years. I think a lot of people probably would look to you as somewhat of like a savior archetype of the well, world or the country, which I know might be a bit you, a bit Eric. much to say, but it really is 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 true. In Leave a lot it of ways. to me to save the world. <laughs> but it's interesting to see these these childhood strategies manifest as adults. You know, and we see these things. It's like, oh yes, it's just happenings. But a lot of the things, the way that we're acting out in our careers or acting out within a relationship, you know, or on social media or any of that, really is we're being governed by this subconscious manifestation yeah. of something that was imprinted on us as like a little boy or a little girl. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I started doing a lot of inner child work on myself when I was in my early 20s. So, I mean, that, ugh, that was 20 years ago. So I started to recognize what I did in my childhood. Because, of course, as a child, I would do uh, savior archetype. What's that? Rescuer. No idea what that even means. And do you I, have you identified with that? that yeah. Idea? Is that like a... Because it just sounds accurate with what you're saying, but I'm not like saying you are the, the uh, savior archetype. No, be. yeah, uh, that that's what I've seen in myself with all the inner child work and still to this day looking back where I would play the role of the rescuer, savior. And at times that would be, you know, my parents are having relationship challenges. So, you know, my mom's 
got a lot of anxiety and depression about that. So I would try to rescue her. I would try to rescue my dad. I would try to, without knowing I was doing it as a kid, but looking back, watching the game film, I was like, oh yeah, I was doing that. I would try to hold the whole family together. And part of that was through overt actions. Other times it would be what I repress about myself. So not saying any of this was effective, just saying it, it was the attempt of the young savior JP where, you know, if I had a, an emotional challenge, I'm upset, I'm sad. If I brought that to the table in a family that's currently experiencing times of trouble and disconnect, then the childhood perception was, oh, my emotional upset will just make things worse. It'll be more weight on the system that already can't handle its own weight. So I would emotionally repress a lot and and basically make put my needs on the back burner to the point where I don't even see them. I don't even know what they are because unconsciously I think I viewed them as a burden that could threaten the the only world I ever known, which was the globe of my family. So repressing some stuff is part of how I would try to play the role of the savior and then doing actions, trying to caretake my mom and sister and dad uh, would be other ways. So it was active polarity, part of what I would do, and then passive polarity, part of what I just wouldn't bring to the table. Um, So yeah, a lot of savior archetyping going on have you so i think oftentimes like i i think i've um, exhibited quite a bit of that as well in in certain ways um you know for a long time i identified with the the moniker of like shoemaker with no shoes where i was like always doing for me it was like manual therapy and training and like helping with other people's mainly physical experience Um, but i wouldn't really treat myself to any of that you know it was more like as long as i am the therapist then, you know, I must be fine because yeah. I'm in this, this teacher role. Yeah. And, and it further validates the savior archetype of like, yep, you're in the teacher role. So boom. Yeah. And a lot of times that can be, I, I think individuals in those roles oftentimes have like the, the deepest repression or maybe some type of avoidance or some type of like maybe perhaps pain or some unaddressed aspects of their themselves and placing themselves into the savior or into the teacher or into the therapist role is a effective uh, coping mechanism to continue kind of just pushing the buck back, you know, and at some point we'll address that, you know, but right now I'm the savior. hundred percent. It's the wounded healer yeah. archetype. Try to heal others in order to avoid doing the healing that you yourself have to do. In fact, in my early 20s, I started health coaching. And then from there, quickly went down a track of doing emotional healing coaching. And, and, I, and I was doing work with my own coaches to do my own healing. But also at the same time, I could see, yeah, the work I'm doing with other people. And I even knew it at the time. It's like, yes, I, I am genuinely offering what I thought was a great service to people. And I think it was. But also it's a way to avoid some of the gravity of 
what's undealt with within myself and still uh, probably happening. I mean, the work I do as a comedian where, you know, my, my mission is to help awaken people to protect, preserve, and celebrate freedom. So given that that's the mission I use comedy to try to accomplish, it's still the savior archetype. And, and I think that's got the functional component and then the dysfunctional component of, and how am I using that to avoid myself? very excited to share one of my absolute favorite fall time beverages that is organifi gold pumpkin spice the reason i like this stuff so very much is because it helps me sleep it helps me down regulate it helps me heal and it tastes freaking delicious so it contains 12 different what they would consider superfoods uh, a few of them would be turmeric ginger reishi mushrooms turkey tail mushrooms and several other completely organic ingredients to support your rest your repair and your recovery. You can get yourself a 20% discount by going to Organifi.com slash align. That is spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash align. If you do not absolutely love this product, if you do not feel a difference, if you don't think it tastes amazing, then get your money back. You have absolutely nothing to lose. And I know that you guys are going to absolutely dig this stuff. So jump over to Organifi.com slash align. How often do you actively engage in steel manning the perspective of the, say, radical left or just the left in general or Joe Biden or um, Trudeau or any of these people that would be, you know, perhaps in the category if, you know, your life was a, was a tale of like, at least in the last couple of years, like the villain? How often do you engage in empathizing and really actively placing yourself into their positions? Yeah, um, it's hard to say the frequency, but... Or just do you? And what does that look like? Right, And can you? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I would chalk it up to once in a while. Yeah. I was having... A, <laughs> however often that is. I was having a conversation with Del Bigtree. He runs the high wire. I, I, I love his work. I love his heart. And we were we were talking in a very empathetic way to these people that it's easy to call them evil. For me, it is. I, my definition of evil is any, anyone who's trying to control another person in a way that's not in their best interest. But just calling them evil and leaving at that discounts what happened to them to make them want to control other people. And, and if we just live in the world where we pretend objectively they are trying to control other people, if we just live there, what I loved about our conversation is they probably just always wanted to feel loved. And then if you look back at some of their childhoods, the, some of the information we can get about them, I know Jordan Peterson's talked a bit about them. I've heard Gabor Mate talk about uh, Biden's childhood, Hillary Clinton's childhood. And what you realize is you, you're looking at a wounded child who's now wearing an adult suit. So for me, there's there's a very real component of empathizing with a lot of these people, if not many, 
carry deep pain. Some of it's from blatant abuse and or never getting the love from their father or their mother that they always wanted and quite frankly deserved. And I think that empathetic heart, if that's a word, it's important to have. And also not excusing bullying or abusive behavior. Because we know typically people who abuse other people or abuse themselves. Hurt people hurt people. And that doesn't mean it's okay for them to hurt people. It means we can understand why they hurt people and understand that what they need more than anything in their personal lives is healing themselves. So yeah, it, it, it's weird because it, man, it's just easier to say, ah, someone's bad. They're crappy. Like, cool. I, I think it's better framed to say some of their behavior is bad. Some of their behavior is crappy. And that's a wounded person. And being willing, I think, to take responsibility for yourself. And it's very easy to take responsibility. Well, maybe it's not easy, but it's it's more apparent taking responsibility for your role in a a dyad relationship with one other person. And I feel like that's a, a really beautiful way to enter a relationship coming from the lens of like, I'm responsible, you know, and you are responsible. And we can collectively meet in the middle around there. And I wonder, it, it seems like the relationship that people have with culture or the government or our partners, it seems like they all share um, these lessons of, of reflections. You know, and I wonder within that, what's a person's, res- an individual's responsibility to their nation, their, their, their culture, their community? Like, how does a person take greater levels of responsibility within their role as a citizen from your perspective? Yeah, I, I think about that in terms of one part is self-awareness, another part is action. And I think self-responsibility is one of the greatest superpowers that we as mortal humans can ever have. So the self-responsibility of like, hey, you look out at society and whatever you like, whatever you don't like about it, can you own the self-responsibility to say, that's my fault? I had a contribution to it, for better or worse. And self-responsibility, as powerful as it is, I think it's scary because it means we're responsible. What I did, what I didn't do, what I did, what I allowed, we have a role in that. It's so easy to just blame the other. But that's attractive disempowerment for everybody. First off, for ourselves, we're giving our power away. And we're giving our power away to change when we just look at the other and say, F you. But if we look at the world through the, the, the lens that all the great wisdom tends to teach, which is the world is our mirror, great, what do you see? We often know we're looking clean at ourselves when we feel an emotional charge. And I, I know like, oh, cool, when I see tyrannical behavior, when I see censorship, I get emotionally charged. Now I need to ask myself, what am I seeing them in the mirror? Because it's easy to look in the mirror when it's easy to look in the mirror. Like, cool, we're doing a self-growth session here. We got crystal bowls playing. Like, all right, it's a safe time to look in the mirror and self-reflect. But it's hard to look in the mirror when it's hard to look in the mirror. So even with whatever's going on in the world, it's so important to look in the mirror. And I, I see my emotional charge like, cool, tyrancy, censorship. What's that tell me about me? And I, and I, 
I could escape that question and say, well, I don't treat people tyrannically. I don't censor people. I, I advocate for them to speak their minds freely, preferably with respect. But my answer tends to be, I treat myself tyrannically. I censor myself. I mean, we were already talked about how I censor my anger. So that's so much self-censorship. So it makes sense that I would be emotionally triggered seeing what I perceive to be other people doing it because I'm blind to how I do it to myself. And thank God for the other in the world for doing it because it provides a mirror for me to see, oh, yeah, I do that. And if I didn't have that mirror, I don't know how I would be able to become aware and then reclaim and rectify how I treat myself like a tyrant at times, how I censor myself at times. So how, part, how do you treat yourself like a tyrant? Part of it's kind of like this. Um, if I'm not productive, then I'm not worthy. Right. That's tyrannical behavior. Uh, I'm not lovable if I show anger to my loved ones. That's tyrannical behavior. You better do this to be lovable. You better do that to be worthy or even just nasty self-talk like, oh, JP, you idiot. Like, how could you do that? Or that, that video sucked. What the hell's wrong with you? So there's a lot of tyrannical behavior in the past couple of years. I've been able to see a lot of it. I'm still sure a lot's in my blind spots, but I've been able to see a lot of it and get myself out of the jail more than I otherwise would have been. So I think there's the self-awareness when we experience the other. And then there's the Gandhi's wisdom of what's the action? What's the change we want to be in the world when we're looking out at society and wondering what we can do? I think first off, we have to be self-aware. Otherwise, our actions will go through the motions of being the change we want in the world, but we won't be vibrating at that frequency. So for example of what my delusional thought is on that, I could crusade for freedom. And without the self-awareness of how oh, I've taught, treated myself as a tyrant, censored myself, I would be vibrating at the frequency of tyranny and censorship if I'm still doing that completely unchecked within myself. So the actions would be crusading for freedom, but the vibration I'm putting out to the world would be that of tyranny and censorship. But I think when we can have the self-awareness, reflect, what am I seeing then about myself in the world, then we can maybe up-level our frequency to help match what our outward actions are striving to create. Yeah, there's, uh, I like the idea, I feel like a, a reasonable compass a person could navigate their life through is, is being curious about things that ruffle their feathers. Yeah. Because there's probably something there. And that tends to be what we want to look at the least. Correct. Yeah. It's yeah. It's like, it's, it's it's like whatever you think, think the opposite. Why? Someone needs to write that down. Whatever. There's you a think, book called "Whatever You Think, Think the Opposite." No, they already they written, did. written it down. <laughs> you just plagiarized. I thought you were smart, Aaron. I was like, well, I'm good. No. But yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that true? It, we, before we were recording, we were talking about relationships. And it's like, cool, in a relationship, we know that a relationship can actually become self-destructive. Some relationships do. We also know relationships, they all have challenges. And those challenges, they, they can feel terrible at times, 
but they can be in your best interest. They can be a catalyst of growth. So whatever you think, think the opposite. It's pretty interesting because it's like when we're tempted to leave a relationship, like, oh, I want to leave. This this sucks. It's probably a good idea to notice that first thought and then at least entertain the opposite. I want to leave. Well, that probably means I should stay. Do you have any tactics? That was what we were discussing before, and it's one of my greatest curiosities. Do, do you have any personal tactics to understand the difference between maybe like an addiction or a compulsion or uh, some type of complex or pattern that really isn't necessarily maybe like serving one's highest good um, and how to differentiate that from like, no, this actually just is your true nature and there's nothing to fight. It's like actually go deeper into this, what you may have categorized as complex or addiction or whatever the thing may be. Or another way of you know thinking about that is how does one know when they're in a perhaps some trauma-bound relationship to somebody else's terminology and to know the difference of, okay, we're actually hurting each other in this relationship or have enough self-awareness within you know yourself and then the collective relationship to say like, oh no, we're actually right at the edge of the good stuff and we need to lean in to access greater liberation. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And basically, no, I don't have tactics. Um, I get incredibly confused. Yeah, me too. (laughs) But I think at best I have clumsiness because it's like all those things. I I try. Um, I try to navigate them. So I have at best some clumsy tactics. I think one clumsy tactic is I try. Yeah, it's like cool. Like let's let's earnestly try Avenue A, and we'll put in good effort for that, and see where that gets us. And then probably, I mean, there there's no substitute for that, and that takes patience because it's like, all right, let's we're not going to have an answer right away, and any answer we do get, it's not going to be clear. It'll be super murky at best. But then. I love taking the counsel of friends, asking people what their experience is. Like, hey, what's your experience in painful relationships like? Or what's your experience like using this substance? Like, it, they say it's non-addictive, but what's your experience? And taking in a collective experience from a different, a bunch of different people who, you know, are similar in nature to me. They're trying to do their thing in the world. They have some self-awareness. So to me, other people's experience, though it doesn't dictate me or necessarily give me clarity, it helps give me permission to see things that I otherwise wouldn't see. But also curious, your answer to that, if you've got tactics. No, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't have tactics. I mean, I'm, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think that there's certain things, it's like we have a lot of noise in our, our lives, and, and I, I think actively having, engaging with some form of traditions or rituals or something that, that creates a, a pattern interrupt, because when you're uh, entwined, enmeshed in the pattern, it's really tough to, you know, you can't read the label from inside the jar kind of thing. So I'm doing, I, I, I mentioned I'm doing this, darkness retreat thing, the trendy thing to do in, in a week where I'll, you know, sit and be in a dark room for five days. And I feel like that would be an example of, there will probably be a lot of 
different thoughts and compulsion, compulsive behavior that pops up in that time. And instead of being in a place of like, okay, I'm just going to execute the behavior, I'm actually kind of in, in like compulsion jail. And that's something that I think that likely if I were suggesting guidance for myself, um, you know, or, or, or providing unsolicited advice to somebody else, probably pattern interrupts. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably very wise. <laughs> I know, as you mentioned, the pattern interrupts, one of the best things, like when, when my wife and I were maybe in a challenge and it's like, the more we communicate about it, the worse it gets. It's like, all right, they we're inside the jar. We can't read the label. But then if I've got to go out of town for the weekend, you know, I'm cool. I'm away. A lot of space, big pattern interrupt. And a lot of times I'll, I'll come back with a lot of clarity of like, Oh, this, this doesn't really matter. And I I can see like, Oh yeah, I, I didn't think I was emotionally charged or projecting, but now like by Sunday morning, a couple days away, it's like, no, I see it. Now it's like a, a, I feel more clarity in me and I can feel the emotional charge out here. So for a man who claims not to have tactics, the, uh, I think your pattern interrupt one that certainly registers as pretty significant. And, and I think also, and I think this comes in relation to the whole, like the otherness and the, like kind of the binary, binary nature of, of maybe the, the country, what seems to be the last couple of years. Um, but really actively, authentically placing yourself in the, the shoes of your opponent or adversary or villain or whatever the thing is, but not just doing it as like, like really doing it, you know, and also acknowledging that you also are the villain Yeah. and really being with that, like, how am I the villain? You know, and that's something I wonder if, what do you think? Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, Trump and Biden and, you know, Trudeau and all the people, they, they know you probably very well. What do you think their perception, maybe not Trump, well, maybe Trump, but what do you think Biden, Trudeau, and the people that would kind of represent that, that side, which again, I think eventually, ideally, maybe the, the sides is a quite valuable way to, to function. It's just, you know, a part of the, part of the stew. It's important for it to be there. Or maybe there's a way to dissolve that or, you know, I'm not sure about that, but what do you think their perception of, of you is? Yeah. Um, yeah. Appreciate you thinking they would even that I would even be on their radar. I'm sure you are. Um, you have to be. Uh, I don't know about that, but um, yeah. I mean, if I pre- pretend I'm seeing JP through their eyes, you know, I might see a guy like, oh, he's arrogant and he says the things he knows will get him attention. Might see a guy that's reckless, like, oh, he's just saying thoughts that'll give him, get him attention and they're maybe not that well thought out might see like oh there's a rebellious guy he's just railing against the establishment because he's a defiant inner child inside i would say if i had to just pick one word i'd probably see rebellious defiance yeah yeah i wonder what do you think there's a couple things one i recently learned a term another term from jung i was kind of prepping with some like Jungian archetype stuff for this conversation. Uh, well, I read the dictionary <laughs> yes. before our conversation. <laughs> yeah, era. Exactly. And in that, in that exploration, one of the terms I learned was, um, I have it written down here. I think it's enantiodromia, which essentially is like the idea of the, if a, an individual uh, veers into like an extreme end of their pole, they essentially 
morph into the opposite. And it's an interesting thing, I think, with you. You've gone through your own version of enantiodromia, I think, with like if you look at who you are now and what you've come to represent and whatnot, which I don't, you know, whatever, whatever that is, but, but who you've become, I think is quite different seeming than who you were 10 years ago. Being like the, the ginger spiritual guy. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) like American flag, muscles, truck, farm, (laughs) fucking America. Like it's completely different. Yeah. And, and politically speaking you know the kind of spiritual dude that tends to be someone thought of on the left and the freedom loving guy tends to be someone thought of on the right um yeah it's interesting and then even the past couple years uh, i think i've just reached a point of antrodromia where some of the work i've done has been like hey i'm representing freedom i'm standing for what's important to me some of my work has also been criticizing what I think doesn't work in society, cancel culture, um, tearing other people down. And I I noticed the past month, I'll tell you how it happened, that my work had gotten too bashy of leftist garbage, cancel culture, the lunacy of like, hey, you know, if you're a biological man and want to use the women's restroom. Like, let's just pretend biology doesn't exist. So I always love what I'm standing for, but I noticed like, yeah, I'm doing a lot of bashing and criticizing the other side. And I think that served for a while. It felt purposeful for a while, but there's, there's now a transition I've had within my consciousness and it, came about, I don't know, four or six weeks ago and part of a a men's group with some of my best friends on the planet. And we were, we had a men's group one evening and we're doing an exercise of helping find each other's blind spots for them where it's like, Hey Aaron, I'm going to share what I think is working really well for you. And what I don't think is working well might be projections, but this is an open space where you get to just receive it and decide for yourself if this is true for you. So three of my friends, uh, they, they had very similar reflections for me and you know, the what's working for you, JP is like, awesome. Thank you. But I'm really interested in what you don't think is working for me in three of their common reflections were as I've kind of been crusading against ideological BS. They're saying JP, we worry that you've gotten too ideological. And you become the ideologue. The, the thing that you're fighting against. Antrogenous, unius rectimus. Enantiodromia. 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 So, but when they put words to it, like I had been feeling something in me, uh, not really knowing what it is, couldn't put it in my own words. But when they said it, it's like, oh, those are the words I've been searching for where I've, I've been using the tactics that I think are not good. So now the past few weeks, it feels so liberating to have a more, which by the way, like all how I'd been doing that, like I legitimately feel like that served whatever cause for a season, but guess what? All seasons have an expiration date. So 
what that helped me realize is it's now more important to me to be much more deliberately empowering with my messages rather than trying to disempower those who I think are maybe destructive. So for example, a video that's going out tonight as of the recording, it's a a video about Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Now to give a contrast, how I would have done that video six weeks ago, I would have put on a blue wig and, and portrayed, you know, a, a sort of radical leftist character, all fucking pissed off about what's going on. But to me, it's, it's, I, I wanted to take a different route. So now it's a self-deprecating route. And the title of the video, it's something like, uh, what conservatives are like now that Elon Musk took over Twitter. And it's taking the piss out of conservatives, which I, I don't like to do the political group think thing, but just to not mince words politically, I'm now very much a conservative. I, I just love freedom. Like whatever side has that, like, cool. That's seems to be conservatives now. So that, that, that's a way I get to represent, Hey, this conservative value of freedom, free speech. It's so important to me, but instead of trying to represent that by bashing the ones that are trying to take it away, now it's like, no, I'm going to self-deprecate us, which is a way of honoring and shining the light of the values while also having the humility to take a piss at my own side. Like, we're also full of shit. Yeah. That's why God gave us a asshole to remind us we're all full of shit. So long story short, I don't even know if anybody from the outside will notice the shift and how I do my comedy now. It doesn't really matter to me because it feels like a significant shift of empowerment, both like, dude, this feels better within my being. And it feels like a more empowering way of putting out a message into the world. Like to take a moment to ask y'all a couple of questions. Would you like to dramatically improve the quality of your sleep and also improve your response to stress? Also, have you or anyone that you know suffered from irritability, anxiousness, insomnia, muscle cramps, or constipation? If you have, then there's a good chance you are a part of the four out of five Americans that are deficient in magnesium. Magnesium is responsible for over 600 biochemical reactions in your body. Magnesium is one of the only supplements that I will actually purchase with my own money. I obviously receive a lot of supplements from companies. Uh, magnesium, I'll just buy it if I don't have it. I really love Mag Breakthrough because it contains all seven different forms of magnesium. And this is great for your brain. It's great for sleep. It's great for pain, inflammation, reducing stress, all the things, and they have a Black Friday sale where they're offering you 25% off and 100% money back guarantee if you don't actually feel a change from the product. So if you want to get yourself 25% off, you can jump over to buyoptimizers.com slash align and then use code align10 at checkout for 25% off any order. So that's B-I-O-P-T. I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align and then enter code align10 for 25% off on any order. Jump over to buyoptimizers.com slash align and uh, enjoy yourself some magnesium.
What do you feel the benefits of censorship are? Where, where is there a scenario where sense, sen- the concept of censorship is valid? So a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water until you take some of the water away. And the, f- the water is probably the most valuable thing to the fish. So uh, the main benefit of censorship that I see is it teaches us to value our freedom. It teaches us to appreciate the ability to speak words and have free human expression, which I think is our God-given state. And it, man, I, I say it often, I'm grateful for censorship. Doesn't mean I like it. Doesn't mean I want more of it. Doesn't mean I want it long term. But I am so grateful for it because I live the first roughly 39 years of my life taking freedom completely for granted taking like just so ignorant about how some people in the world don't have the ability to speak words like you and I are right now without dire consequences. Another benefit of censorship is it's allowed me to realize I have censored myself a lot in my life, trying to audition for people's approval, both as a kid, teenager, um, Early throughout my career, I'd censor anything that I think is going to get me disapproval. So the the value of censorship is it's taught me to appreciate freedom, free speech, and it's taught me how to grant myself more freedom within myself. I'm also curious about the your perception of uh, gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. What is going on with that seemingly being in a um, an uptick? It's becoming, is that because it's actually very normal and it's becoming more socially acceptable? Um, is it because of the, there's the atrazine in the water, it's making the frogs gay? Is it because, like, what, what is your perception of, of that? Yeah, you know, first off, I would say starting off, I love a person to be who the hell you are and to express who the hell you are. And whether you're a man who feels like you're actually a woman trapped in a man's body, or you're a man who just thinks he's a woman trapped in a woman's body, like express that, whether you're expressing the truth of who you are or expressing a self-delusion. I express self-delusions all the time. So I, I've, I love people being able to just be what they are or express self-delusions. And with that said, it, to me, it does seem as though there's uh, some sort of facilitated indoctrination to entice people to find an outlet to escape your insecurities, uncomfortable feelings that are very natural and very healthy as a child and as a teenager, there does seem to be an indoctrination to teach people, well, those feelings that you're you're having inside, that's because you're actually this. So it gives people an outlet to escape themselves. And and I don't like that it seems like there's an indoctrination component to it, but it seems like there's an indoctrination component to me. 
and I know like when I was a kid, you know, I, I was never into drugs, but drugs was the main concern parents have of drugs could be a way my child uses to try to escape their feelings they don't want to deal with. Or sometimes it was them cutting. Sometimes it's behavioral issues. So a, a child or a teenager trying to compensate for uncomfortable feelings, as in escape their uncomfortable feelings, it seems like there's this sort of groomed outlet of um, gender ideology for it. And it, the uptick is very interesting about like, why are there such huge percentages now of people who identify as the opposite gender compared to 10, 20 years ago? And I think an open mind is, is that because the world's a safer place for people to just naturally kind of come out of the proverbial closet? Or is it because they're indoctrinated to do it? Um, my guess is it's probably not one or the other but some mix and ratio of both. And it, the, the biggest concern for me is the, the attempted destruction of objective truth. And, and I look at that as Marxism, where Marxism looks to destroy truth when you get people, you can't destroy truth, but when you get people to destroy their connection with truth, then they're controllable. And, and that's why Marxism is used in communist tyrannical takeovers. So what really concerns me with that is when you see the certain authority figures say like, yeah, there's not a biological difference between a man and a woman. It's like, well, yes, there is. Mm -hmm. You can't gaslight me out of knowing there's a biological difference between a man or a woman or the Supreme Court justice who said, like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a biologist. I can't tell you what a woman is. It's like, well, it's an adult female. Like, we know that. So people aren't that dumb. We know what a woman is. We know there's biological differences. We know that doesn't mean like you can't identify as the other gender. Like, cool. That's awesome too. But that assault on truth and biology, that concerns me because people don't accidentally get that dumb. Authority figures don't accidentally get that dumb. So it's like, why are you acting dumb? Hmm. That's a concern for me. Yeah. The, de the debate around truth, I think is very interesting. And the, and the idea of one side owning the truth or owning the science or owning these, I mean, how subjective is truth, you know, in relation, because when you say the truth, anyone that would oppose you, the immediate thought would be, well, well whose truth are we talking about? Yeah. How does a, a culture go from um, attack and, and, you know, opponents kind of processing to a place of let's actually communicate with each other? This is a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, have you ever read the book, The Fourth Turning? No. Neither have I. Okay. But, um, I listened to an interview Tony Robbins did recently with one of the authors of the book. Uh, I believe his name is um, Neil... Um, forget his last name, forgive me, but one of the authors of The Fourth Turning, and he was saying 
something um, rather sobering because they were talking about all, all the frivolousness going on in the world, specifically in America, where we fight about everything. We're divided about everything. And you raise the question, like, how do we get each other to just talk? You probably realize we agree on 98% of everything. Oh, yeah, man. But we focus on the 2% we disagree with. So how do we bridge that gap? And in my summary of what the author was talking about is we've lived in a very easy generation. We Everybody's probably heard the old scenario of strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times then create strong men. So after World War II, we get into this scenario where uh, we were born in a relatively weak generation. And that's not meant to be disrespectful. It's just like we were blessed with easy times, but we all need problems. Blessed or burdened. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. Depends on your perspective and it's Mm -hmm. probably both. So we all need problems because problems give us a sense of purpose. Problems are also how we grow. You know, the weight is the problem for the muscle to solve. The muscle's not going to grow unless it has the problem of the weight. So we, we seem like, I think we've manufactured problems that don't really matter. So what the author was saying is how we get out of this based on the historical patterns we've been in. Because what we're seeing, he was saying, like, we think we're in something new. It's like, dude, you know, there was a worldwide lockdown and people are fighting about genders and which way's up, which way's down, and uh, snow doesn't exist. He's saying, this isn't unique. This has all happened before. So based on historical patterns, here's how we get out of it. Either a civil war or a war with an outside nation. Fuck. By the way, I, I hope there's another outlet. <laughs> But why would a, a either a civil war or a war with an outside nation, be it Russia, China, wherever, why would that get us out of it? Because that would give us something that really matters. And yeah. we can unite over what really matters. Or when, aliens. Aliens would be great. That'd be, That'd be my hope. That'd be sick. I wonder if they're going to come tonight. Dude, that'd be so sick. So, you know, (laughs) if we had a real existential, like something really matters, and I think it's in human nature to just inherently know if we've got a threat greater than ourselves, we're automatically going to unite. We'll just do it effortlessly because we, we have to be united. We have to become bigger than we are as individuals in order to surmount this really big problem. So I think that's why the author would say a war, civil or otherwise, would do it. And history has proven that to be true. But if that were to happen, we'd realize like, oh, like uh, what we're fighting about here, it doesn't matter. Like what restroom you use, like who gives a fuck? Look at what's over there. So who? it's something interesting to think about. Why do you think humans crave chaos and and crave struggle i think because we crave a sense of control so we want something to control and it's hard to control order because it's already under control so i know for myself i'll like at my own personal level sometimes i'll put shit off to the last minute 
because there's this like I, I can see like oh I'm craving a sense of chaos because probably I'm really craving a sense of control so I I don't know that's my guess but curious your thoughts on why humans crave chaos I don't know I mean I, I think that I feel like humans are the analogy that's coming to my mind is, is like golden retriever it just wants to retrieve yeah you know it's like its greatest joy and I think that humans have been endowed with this capacity to problem solve, unlike any other critter roaming, you know, the land. Although if you get down into critters, you know, they, they problem solve quite well as well. But we, we have this capacity for adaptation, unlike anything else. And I think that when you get into someone, maybe like the stereotypical person that's really wealthy, they live in Malibu or, or you know, Hollywood, and it seems like they just have everything Oftentimes, there's a lot of usage of anti-anxiety or antidepressants or drug use or whatever. There's almost like this escapism, like it's too easy. I gotta, I, I gotta get out of this. You know, I need to start a fire someplace, or I need to start an argument, or I need to whatever the thing may be. And so it feels to me like that capacity to problem solve. If we don't actually have a meaningful problem, such as and something that also a problem that that um, supports our our biological well-being, such as there's a storm coming, you know, we need to hunt or gather or like roam the land and like turn our gears to solve these problems. I think that's how the human operates best. Um, but if you outsource all of those potential more like quote unquote like natural problems to technology and then we don't have any more natural problems to solve we have all of this bandwidth that this problem solving bandwidth that's going to go towards something yeah. the the retriever wants to retrieve yeah. <laughs> yeah i also i think that i like how you bring sort of the biological i call it self-preservation mm. instinct into it like we need problems, but if they're all solved through technology or ease of living, then what? I also think there's the self-realization instinct with the self-preservation. And, and I think the self, uh, self-preservation self says, I need to solve problems in order to survive. If I'm not sur- solving a problem, like I'm, I'm being complacent, so the wolves are going to get me or I'm going to starve. But then I think the self-realization instinct knows that happiness comes from growth. We, we just want to grow as individuals, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. You know, once our basic needs are met, then we can entertain growing as people, evolving. And we need to solve problems in order to grow. Just to put it simply, I think there's plenty of worthy problems to solve. If we were to magically be on track with our life purpose, it's probably going to be having us contribute in some way to a cause greater than ourselves, whether that's our family, community, country, um, getting drinking water for uh, uh, villages in Africa, so I think that's a great way to put that problem-solving energy with our self-realization needs. But if we're not on that track of my life purpose, solving problems to contribute to the greater growth of the world, then we're probably unconsciously either looking for problems that aren't going to take us in a contributing direction 
or we create the problems. Yeah. I wonder something else I wanted to, I, I was, I, I found to be interesting and it was particularly in relation to the Jung stuff as uh, I wonder where our story of God falls into our relationship with, um, you know, our, our, our country, our relationship to our career, our relationship to ourself, um, our relationship to a sensation of aimlessness or like ever present lurking anxiety or feeling fulfilled, feeling, you know, all of the things. It seems like historically there's been this concept of, of God that cultures and tribes would kind of organize around. And then, you know, back, I don't know, maybe in like tribal times, maybe, I, I, well, I think there was, it was probably worshiping of like animism and nature and things of the sort. But that was the prominent thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the church, there's no building in, in the town higher than the church. And I heard Esther Perel in her book, Mating Captivity, I think she said something along the lines of like, you know, at one point, God would be the, you know, kind of like the highest force that would be like the greatest fulfillment. And then we'd organize our relationships around that. And you know, now it's kind of like the relationship, you know, finding your marital partner and they're going to be your, your lover and your best friend and your business partner and all of these things. Do you have a relationship to God, JP? What does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, uh, I think I do for many years. I've sort of had a mantra that says, can I let what wants to live through me live through me? And where those words take me is a place where I do my best to listen to a call that comes from hopefully beyond my own thinking mind, Uh, a call to purpose generated from above what I would call God. And Part of that means I have to look at what I want, what my ego wants for me and my life. And on my good days, I'll surrender that in service of the higher purpose that wants to live through me. So that higher purpose, I think it comes from God. And and I don't necessarily put that in a lot of religious terminology, though maybe it could be translated to, into religious terminology. If you had to define God, how do you define God? My feeble definition would be um, all that is. And, and then my footnote to that, uh, to sort of acknowledge relativity with the definition would be the source greater than ourselves. Um, so that that's what I... Uh, how, how I look at it. And I think the more we, the more I'll own it, the more I can ask and listen for guidance from that source, then they have the courage to live it to the best of my ability, the better life seems to work out for me. So yeah, long story short, uh, I think I have a relationship with God and mm. that's, a bit of my interpretation. It's of it. weird. Yeah. It's such a strange, even when I say the, like I, I notice certain like sphincteral clenchings manifest as a product of even saying, recording, you know, a, a sentence around God. Cause all these question marks come up like, what does that mean? I know that there's so many, you know, barnacles attached to that word or concept or idea. It's an interesting thing that, 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 
the the thing or entity or what you know what have you that has has been you know probably the held in the highest regard for a very long time it, me as a you know a 30 something year old dude in 2020 whatever year it is um it's like a really uncomfortable terrain to navigate it's a little strange it yeah it is strange i, I think um it's great to have humbleness around our relationship with god in the sense of like we don't really know how can we really know well you and i don't but some people do <laughs> they de- they definitely <laughs> say they do yeah <laughs> you know they do though yeah, uh, you're saying they do know exactly what God is. Yes, to them they do. Oh uh, yeah, so that that'd be the lack of humbleness, in my maybe. opinion. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I guess I don't know either. <laughs> but I, I think there's a beautiful blend of humbleness of I don't really know, yet also unapologetic sincerity with, and I'm gonna go after it the best I can in the sense of connecting and interpreting what God is, but probably always holding curiosity around our own own interpretations. Like I, I used to look at all religion, like dude, these unevolved dogmatic bastards, like what the hell? And, you know, I got in the spiritual lingo and it's like, dude, this kind of actually makes more sense to me and also further validates these dogmatic religious people. And now the past couple of years, not that I'm a religious scholar, but I'll, I'll get in touch with what are probably considered to be much more traditional Christian values. And I'm like, bet that makes a lot of sense to me now in a way that it it didn't to me five years ago. And maybe having a child has changed something, but maybe just getting old, older and slightly less dumb allows me to see maybe a little bit more clarity of the fruits that some of those folks have been talking about that my own bias just dismissed as old dogmatic stuff. Um, But yeah, it's very interesting. But what I do know is uh, I think if a person just lives for themselves, they'll never feel fulfilled. They'll have dopamine hits. They'll find moments of gratification. Their ego will probably be happy a fair bit of the time. But I think when we live for a cause greater than ourselves, doesn't mean we have to self-sacrifice and be the martyr, but living for a cause greater than ourselves, where we have a significant amount of our life energy devoted to the betterment of people, the world around us, however our unique expression of that looks while taking care of ourselves, that seems to be a recipe for a pretty fulfilled life, rich with meaning. I'm going to take a moment and share about something that has absolutely knocked my socks off and I was quite skeptical about in the beginning that is utilizing exogenous ketones as a fantastic source of fuel 
adds mental clarity and it also reduces appetite which is kind of an interesting side effect as well um, i've done a whole podcast episode all about the benefits of it i really love using it before a podcast episode i just drank a bottle before reading this ad actually and it's it does an interesting thing it induces that similar sensation that you'd have after doing an extended fast and your body transitioning over into ketosis and uh, it's like a almost euphoric upbeat energetic cognitively clear sensation it's highly recommended i would i would just just give it a try uh if you don't absolutely love it no worries you can get your money back but i think it's one of those things just it's supportive to have in your toolkit uh so the company's called hvmn uh the drink is called ketone iq i uh, recorded a whole podcast with the founder of the company and got into the deep details of what the heck is going on with this and i think you guys are going to dig it so go to hvmn.com and then at checkout type in the code align-20 and you will save 20 percent on off on your purchase that's hvmn.com and then at checkout type in a-l-i-g-n dash 20 and you will receive 20 percent off your purchase there's uh victor frankel he said the man's search for meaning guy he said a person who lacks purpose will seek pleasure as a like a surrogate of sorts I added the surrogate part and yeah. completely paraphrase that whole thing. And yes, dude, I, I, I'm just curious if, if you think about some of the more purposeful moments, times in your life, was there always pleasure there? Hmm. Interesting. Typically the pleasure would be, I think there's an interesting like reciprocal relationship. Oftentimes the deeper purposeful experiences, there's not pleasure in the moment, but then there's this greater sensation of like pleasure that hits deeper in the aftermath compared to the inverse where it's high pleasure in the moment. And then oftentimes a lull on the other side. Yeah. My, my experience is the same. So I, I think that that paradox that Viktor Frankl mentions where are you seeking pleasure or are you seeking purpose? And if you're seeking pleasure, you'll probably find very little purpose long-term. If you're seeking purpose, probably find very little pleasure short-term, but probably long-term, a lot of pleasure comes on the other side of it. Do you feel like you, your life is on purpose as, as on purpose as I would imagine you probably have old programming that, that, um, suggest that you could be doing more and you're not actually like living to your full potential. I would guess, but I, I mean, I could be totally wrong about that. Do you feel like you, where are you at in, in, in your, um, fulfillment of, uh, being with or achieving your purpose in this life? Yeah. Like in the moment, I feel like a eight or a nine out of 10. <laughs> you know, That's I, pretty good. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> grateful for it. I I feel very on purpose in terms of my work, being a parent to my little boy. I feel tremendous purpose. And I also, my relationship with purpose, what I've learned is like it grows and evolves and just gets bigger and therefore seems to change. So what I do know is what gives me so much purpose now if I kept doing those exact things, like, dude, this is the formula. 
I release this many videos a week. I do this many comedy shows. I spend this much time with my son. Let me lock in that formula and then only do that for the next 10 years. Probably wake up in 10 years and be like, dude, my life is not very purposeful. Yeah, this sucks. But it, it's what gives me purpose in the moment. And I think part of surfing the wave of purpose is realizing the wave's going to change as you navigate it. So can we have the awareness to feel the changes as we go? What do you think it will take to get uh, culture, at least in, say, the United States, I don't know enough about other cultures to have you know, a meaningful, anything to really say about it, uh, but get North American culture to a point of trusting uh, media again? Yeah. Uh, like, is, I, it, is it redeemable? I don't think it's redeemable, and I don't think it deserves to be redeemable. To me, the a goal of trying to get American culture to trust media again, that's not a worthy goal. To me, the goal is how to get people to listen and think for themselves and trust their own perspective. Because to me, the sort of from a consciousness standpoint, the idea of trusting the media is all about outsourcing your truth. I think it's great to entertain the media. I'd love for the media on the whole to get to a place where we can look at them and say, it seems like they give a pretty earnest effort to be journalists and present information. Cool. That'd be awesome. And with that information, let me draw my own conclusions. But now the media, it's very little presenting of information and largely presenting opinion with maybe some information in the middle that's hard to decipher. So uh, I think the goal is to get people to trust themselves and think for themselves. How does a person begin? And we'll, and we'll wrap up soon because you, you have child duties. I do have child duties. You try, you have child duties. <laughs> I guess in, in, in closing... Like, what do you think the world needs right now? Like, if there was something that at an individual level we could start to engage with, like, what can we do at an individual level to live a more fulfilled life, to live a, a life in greater purpose, you know, just to feel connected to something bigger than ourselves? Like, how does a person start that, that, uh, that process? Yeah, I think the way not to start the process is to think about how do I do 10,000 steps all at once, but your word of start the process. So what's the first step and therefore the most meaningful step? For me, it, it goes to be kind, be kind and be very generous to people. And I'm not talking about like, dude, like, it, it, like to 10,000 people at once. No, 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 like be kind to the person in front of you. Go out of your way to be generous. Could you stand at the door 10 seconds longer because you see, you know, a, an old woman coming and it's just going to, even though physically opening the door might not actually help her, it's a gesture of kindness that will probably impact her more than the physical act. We're very impacted by kindness, even if we don't need the help. It means a lot to people. And I know in my day when I'm, intentionally going out of my way to be kind, my wife, my son, or someone at the coffee shop. Your adversary. My adversaries, absolutely, when I'm not stomping on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's weird how fulfilling it is to be kind. And we know fear is contagious, but kindness is also very contagious. 
not only does the moment of kindness matter between you and the other person, but it sets an example for other people that we probably won't capture and be able to measure like what was the impact on other people with our kindness, but it has an impact. So for me, it doesn't need to be a complex, abstract, big Mount Everest of a, uh, an equation. It's to me, the most important thing is to be kind. Yeah. I think something that I was, I was having a conversation with someone a few days ago and they were talking about wanting to do like, they would love to do these amazing humanitarian efforts and start up non profit and all of this like amazing stuff and it would you know it it would only take you know 10 million dollars or so you know this huge like that we'll have it we'll have an impact it's gonna be it's gonna feel so good and then you know that in in my i couldn't help my mind but kind of wandering into that this concept feels lovely but also kind of like empty in a way because it's 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 creating a separation between just being that now and the idea of I will be that when, which I don't know that that ever actually happens. It's like I will be happy when. It's like I don't I don't think that it works that way. I think it's it's what's your operating system that you're that you're presently governed by, and how do you start to, you know, investigate that? But that that was just something that I found to be interesting. If like, and I think it's you know it's one of the most fulfilling um, things that we can do is extending kindness out. It's actually it's actually like quite incredibly selfish. Yeah. Know? share because you're you're having that moment when you're when you're offering that kindness you're being kind to yourself yeah it's life it's like life tricking us into helping other people because guess what it it helps you so much like uh, i know for myself i'm curious your experience for me i feel happier doing a good deed for someone else than when someone gifts me with a great deed like I, i love that it's great but for me, there's even more fulfillment in doing the good deed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when it can be mutual, I think is quite nice. Yeah. Like, so the the idea that you know everything is tit for tat, you know, and the cool I did, I expended this much energy for you, and now we kind of have this bank. You owe me that much energy. There's a lot of activities that people can engage in that are mutually filling. Indeed, and you mentioned something earlier. Uh, you know division in our country and how do we get people to sit down in addition to kindness and this is i think a cousin of kindness understanding people like listening without the need to prove them right or wrong some without even the need to or be, prove yourself valid absolutely and without needing for you to be heard but the gift of listening to people seeking to understand them that really matters to people Hmm. Yeah, and then, then that again, it's it reflects back to seeking to understand yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. It, thank. Yeah, I feel like this has been several therapy sessions for me, <laughs> which I love. Uh, but no, bro, I, I love your. I love where you've taken this conversation and allowing me to tee up some somewhat incoherent thoughts that. Um, feel great to connect to through the cool. wisdom of your questions and Thanks, your man. comments, brother. I appreciate it. Um, I so greatly appreciate the life that you've created for yourself. And on your your bathroom, um, your toilet, I was taking a piss. And I noticed the, the book that was facing up, I'm sure probably intentionally, probably from Amber, is The Magic of Thinking Big. And it's, it's very impressive that you've been able to cultivate that. 
you and Amber together and individually and collectively and your family and that you've been able to, it's very rare. Like you're a very rare person. No, oh, thank you for thinking I'm abnormal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you seeing me and acknowledging some of the, the beautiful things that we've been able to receive in life. Mm. Where do people go from here? What's the, what, what do people do? I mean, I mean obviously go check out all your stuff. Um, yeah, just check out all my just things. Just check out all your stuff. Just shit. all of it. Yeah, what's, what's the best place? I mean, I, I think you're very easy to find, but is there anything that's yeah. the most relevant that we could point people to that, that matters you know, for you? Well, uh, you, my website, awakenwithjp.com, houses all my stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, shameless plug, uh, just released a comedy special called Please Censor This, oh, which maybe. you can connect to through my website, awakenwithjp.com. Great. Sweet. Um, all right, cool. Well, I had a bunch of other stuff written down on here, um, but I think we did get actually through some of the things I was excited to talk about. So thank you so much. I really, truly, greatly appreciate you and your friendship and what you've created and getting to learn from you. And that is it. That is all. Over now. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. If you want to see the video to these podcasts, you can jump over to the Align Podcast YouTube page and check this one out, particularly recorded it at JP's Ranch in Texas, out in the barn. It's very cool, really beautiful, very aesthetic, and uh, I think you guys would dig that as well. If you want to share this conversation, if you thought it was relevant and important to share, you can tag JP at JP Sears. You can tag myself at Align Podcast. Thank you once again for subscribing. Thank you for leaving us reviews. Thank you for doing you, and uh, I will see you next week.